From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. This insistence on the Bible really holds together evangelicalism, but it's also a way that evangelicals have used the Bible and their morality as a way to shield themselves from critique, first of all, and then secondarily, the ways in which that biblicism is part of the racism. I think that we need to start to really question this idea that evangelicals are the most moral group in America. They really aren't. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is Anthea Butler. She's Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. Professor Butler is a leading historian and public commentator on religion and politics and has appeared on networks including CNN, the BBC, and MSNBC, and has published opinion pieces in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other media outlets. Today we're discussing her recent book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Professor Anthea Butler, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much, David. Great to be here. So, I'd like to start our conversation by going back nearly 30 years to a church on the West Coast called Church on the Way. It's 1992. The Rodney King verdict has just been handed down, and you're sitting in Church on the Way during a rally called Love LA. And a woman turns to you and says, welcome to our church. I would love for you to paint that picture for our listeners. What were you doing in that church? What was that moment with the woman, and who was that woman, and why was it significant that she said to you, welcome to our church? Uh, yeah, that's a hard one. I had been a member of the Church of the Way since about 1986. I had served in various capacities in the church and had been, I thought, very visible. And when the riot or the uprising, depending on who you talk to, happened. One of the things that the churches wanted to do in the area was to bring African-Americans and whites and others together to unify the city and hence love L.A. And so this service was with uh, Church on the Way, Hollywood Presbyterian, and uh, Faithful Central Bible Church, which was a Baptist church pastored by Kenneth Ulmer. This was a historically Black church. And everybody convened on Church in the Way, which was in Van Nuys, California. I was at the service, and the woman that I happened to be sitting next to that day was Jack Hayford's mother, who knew me. But because there was a lot of other new Black people in the congregation, she turned to me and welcomed me as though I had never been there. And I realized that was the moment of invisibility, but it was also another moment. It was not just invisibility, but it was the way in which white evangelicals looked at Black people as a, just an appendage to what was going on, 
or B, as someone that they needed to welcome who was foreign to their congregation. And in that moment, I felt alienated from a place that had been my home for a while that had spiritually nurtured me, that I thought had cared about me, that I thought had seen me as a person. And I realized they hadn't seen me as a person at all. Now, I want to make sure that I've heard you correctly and and that my listeners have heard you correctly. You had been a member of that church for six or seven years at that point. But what this moment told you, and these are my words, not yours, so feel free to correct me, was that you were a perpetual outsider, that even though you had invested half a decade in that church and being a member of that church, that that entire institution still saw you as someone, to use your, your words, an appendage or someone invisible who was always to be welcomed as an outsider but never to be treated as one of the members, one of the family. Now, have I heard you correctly or would you say it in a different way? I would say it in that way. Plus, I would just say it was the moment in which, because there had been a Black congregation invited to the church, that everyone was assumed to be part of the Black congregation and not part of Church in the Way. And I think that is the problematic about white evangelicalism. It supposes that either if you're there, you're one of us and you act like us, or Basically, you're an outsider and you can be welcome, but you're not part of us. Now, I chose to begin our conversation there because in your book, White Evangelical Racism, you literally say at that point, as you begin the paragraphs talking about this experience, here's where I enter the story. But your book, White Evangelical Racism, is so much bigger than that. And the historical sweep that you encompass in your writing is so much greater than that. I wonder if you could briefly walk my listeners through the structure of the book. Where does it begin and where do you end? The book begins in slavery. And the reason why I start there in the 19th century is because this is the defining moment for not just America, but for American evangelicalism and for Christianity in America more broadly. I start off by not talking about the ways in which evangelicals like to talk about themselves, which is we were part of the abolitionist movement. We were part of temperance. All of that is true. What evangelicals haven't been willing to talk about is that there were also slaveholders. And I think that we need to wrestle with the fact that evangelical biblicism is part of the reason why you get slavery in America, because people make scriptural justifications for it and they break up churches because of it. To give you a present day example, think about why the Southern Baptist Convention exists. It exists because of slavery. It exists because churches split. So I think that's an important thing to say. Then the book takes you through reconstruction and what historians call redemption, which is the period where whites in the South and in the North wrestle back, try to wrestle back the gains that African-Americans make in the post-slavery and Reconstruction time. It also moves through very quickly and judiciously up to the 1940s, where we start with the National Association of Evangelicals. It moves through a good piece of the big chunk of Billy Graham's career through the 1950s through the 1970s and discusses the ways in which communism and other things get inflected with a kind of racism that is really important to understand why evangelicals were in mostly opposition to the civil rights movement. It moves through the 1970s and the moral majority and the formation of the moral majority and why the religious right is not just about abortion. It is about racism. It moves through the 1980s and the 1990s And we get to the 2000s where we talk about George W. Bush, who is the, I would say, the quintessential evangelical president, the problems and the perils that happen when we elect the nation's first Black president and how evangelicals respond to that. And we end with the very sort of tiptoeing up to Donald Trump 
And I want to make clear something about this book because I think it's really important. A lot of books are out right now that talk about evangelicals and why they love Donald Trump. And these books are good, but this book does something different. And that book is, a, my book is about this particular thing. Why have evangelicals embraced a racist president? You can't understand what has happened with Donald Trump unless you go back to the beginnings of evangelicalism in the late in the early 19th century. Understand why they did this embrace, why they have held so deeply and clearly onto him, where they voted for him 81% in the 2020 election cycle. And so I think once people see this history in total, then I hope that they will understand that the racism that exists in evangelicalism today is very deep. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Anthea Butler. We're talking about her recent book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Well, you've just given us the overview of what the book is about. There's a lot in there that I want to dig into. But as a way of starting into that digging in process, I want to go back to a term that you used just a moment ago, this term evangelical biblicism. If you could explain a little bit about what you mean by that. What I mean by that is how evangelicals read the Bible, how they understand it, how they use it, not just for themselves, but as a way to set up boundaries against people. So when I'm talking about evangelical biblicism, we can talk about the ways in which historically evangelicals have read scripture, both inerrant and infallible. So inerrant means it's without fault. It is something that you use for everyday life. And infallible, it is the absolute tool for everything. And so those two things really gripped evangelicals and a lot of history behind that, which we don't have time to go into today, but I just put it to people this way. You start with the fundamentals in 1915, you get to the Scopes trial, you understand the ways in which groups break apart and some become fundamentalists and some become evangelicals. And basically this insistence on the Bible really holds together evangelicalism, but it's also a way that evangelicals have used the Bible and their morality as a way to shield themselves from critique, first of all, and then secondarily, the ways in which that biblicism is part of the racism. Because if you read the Bible a certain way and you ignore all the parts where Jesus says to go feed the poor and do all this other stuff, then you are a selective reader and you've decided that you need to read it a certain kind of way and that other things don't really matter to you. And I think that evangelicals engage in this a lot. Well, and you mentioned earlier that you start with slaveholding. And so to take this idea of evangelical biblicism and take the focus backwards, there are several points where in your book, White Evangelical Racism, in early on you're talking about in that first chapter the ways in which slaveholders were using the Bible and at times even reconstructing the Bible to support their racism. And even to the point, and this blew my mind when I read it, that there were arguments being made by evangelical thinkers that if you were Christian and a slaveholder, that could not by definition be sinful. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, it couldn't be sinful because God ordained it. If you want to have a present day example of this, there is a young conservative group at Baylor University that just had a meeting about a week or two ago, and you can find this on Twitter because I put it in my Twitter feed, about how God ordained slavery and that slavery was meant to give African-Americans or the enslaved a way to become Christian. And so this justification for slavery, this idea that Christian slaveholding was the right thing to do, was in part because you felt that Christian slaveholders were going to be better than other slaveholders that were not Christian. The reality is that Frederick Douglass did a whole thing on slaveholding Christianity. 
And basically one of the stories that he tells in that particular piece of his biography is that one of the people who whipped and beat his slaves mercilessly was a pastor. And so I think we have to think about the ways in which evangelicals have been complicit and have embraced these kinds of things that they so much, very much want to put themselves away from in this recounting of their history. Well, and a moment ago, you used this term re-narration. You said you're re-narrating the white evangelical story that they tell themselves, that they were abolitionists and that they were part of freedom movements and all of that. But what strikes me about what you are showing us in your book, White Evangelical Racism, is that evangelicals have participated in the re-narration of African-American experience, of African experience, and not just of their own story, but of the story of others as well, telling stories about African-American women, African-American men, and the Africans from whom they were drawn. All of those things are re-narrations that tell the worst possible stories about these different populations. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that re-narration. Yeah, I think we can see that in the ways in which Black families are spoken about today, where people talk about the broken family and how mothers are the matriarchs and there's no fathers around. And there's no looking at statistics or anything for that. All of that comes out of slavery and the narration of how you think Black families are because they've been torn apart by slavery. And what you think a white family is, it's together, it's moral, It's looking for God first. And these stories that have been told by evangelicals, whether that's we're going to go meet those poor benighted Africans in Africa and give them Christianity because they don't have civilization, or the ways in which African-Americans are spoken about in the Reconstruction period and beyond, and even today, when we talk about things like law and order, or in the words of Franklin Graham, which I talk about in the book, that, oh, you should just, if you just listen to the police, this wouldn't happen to you. You wouldn't be dead. And that kind of talk, that kind of attitude, that kind of denigration of others. And I'm not talking about just African-Americans here. We can say this about how people have, evangelicals have responded to the coronavirus by calling it the China virus or the Wuhan virus or all these other kinds of of names against Asian-Americans. I think that we need to start to really question this idea that evangelicals are the most moral group in America. They really aren't. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Anthea Butler. She's Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. She's a leading historian and public commentator on religion and politics. She's appeared on networks including CNN, the BBC, and MSNBC. Today, we're talking about her recent book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying this conversation, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Professor Anthea Butler. She's Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the book Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. She's a leading historian and public commentator on religion and politics. And today we're talking about her recent book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. In our first segment, you said something that I want to come back to. You said that oftentimes when we talk about the kind of birth of the contemporary evangelical movement, it's oftentimes located in the passage of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that made abortion legal in the United States. But you recharacterize it and you say that evangelicalism in the way that we understand it in its contemporary form is not about abortion. It's always been about racism. And I'd love to hear more about how you are making that connection and why you choose to put the founding sort of moment, not in Roe v. Wade, but in this racist tradition. I want to say first that I didn't choose that moment. Bob Jones University chose that moment. And what I mean by that is this. The question for evangelicals since 1954 was Brown v. Board of Education, which mandated that schools would be integrated. And that was something that was fought all of that time. And Bob Jones University was a segregationist school. They basically did not want African-Americans or anyone else of any other race, by the way, at that school. They started to let people in at the end of the 1960s. And these were Asians who were married because they felt like they would not basically want to interracially date, okay? Fast forward to we're after the civil rights movement and we're after some laws that have been established and the IRS comes calling and the IRS asks, and I'm flattening this story to make it easy for everyone. You'll have to read the details of the book. They ask, well, you know, are you planning on integrating? What are you doing? And they are not planning on it. They keep shining on the IRS. And so the IRS takes away their tax-exempt status. And this creates a hue and outcry because they are upset. And this is beginning of a letter-writing campaign to the IRS and to the government in the 1970s. And it is actually this that motivates the organization of what we see becoming the moral majority, first of all, and then secondarily, a way where a man who does not get the credit that he deserves some of the time, Paul Weirich, organizes on the basis of this discontent about what has happened with Bob Jones University and the loss of their tax-exempt status. And so this becomes a very big deal. And I think your your listeners should understand that Bob Jones did not regain their tax-exempt status until the early 2000s. Okay, so that's how long this has lasted. And so while everybody on the outside looks and says, oh, okay, it must have been abortion. This probably happened with the formation of Roe v. Wade. It's not abortion that brings everybody together. It's used very well. But the initial thing that happens is the loss of the tax exempt status. And why this is important is crucial, because it's not just about Bob Jones. It's about every Christian academy, and I put that in quotation marks, that is actually a segregationist academy. Christian schools were a way to not make sure that you didn't have to bring in anybody else of any other race. You didn't have to integrate. You didn't have to worry about all these things. So you look at Christian schools and how they even operate today in places like Mississippi and others, and they're basically segregation academies. 
And so I think we need to understand that this history of racism and evangelicalism has really spanned out to education in lots of different ways that we really haven't accounted for. You mentioned a moment ago a person who you said hasn't quite gotten his due yet, this man, Paul Wyrick. And readers of your book will learn that Paul Wyrick was not an evangelical, but instead saw that political alliances with evangelicals was going to be very important for his cause. Tell us a little bit about Paul Wyrick. Paul Ryrick was actually a Catholic. And I think what's interesting about Paul Ryrick is that he's one of the first people who really talks about voting in the way that we hear it spoken about today. He says he doesn't want all this goo-goo government or what he calls good government. He says, I don't want everybody to vote. I want only certain people to vote. And we should bring people together in groups so that alliances, so that we can build voting blocks. And one of those groups were evangelicals. And so the kind of work that he did in order to bring bring people together is really important in the 70s because he's the person who's behind the scenes. He scenes. He's been working on lots of different things throughout the 70s, some of the textbook, you know, controversies, the early textbook controversies. And when he comes on the scene during the time of the formation of the moral majority, he is a force and he is connected. And when we start to think about the Heritage Foundation, he's right there at the beginning. So I think he's someone who has had a huge impact on evangelicals and politics. But we don't see him because he's the behind the scenes kind of guy bringing everybody together. Well, and that sentence that you just said that is attributed to Wyrick, that he doesn't want everybody to vote. We're seeing the ripples of that, the fruits of that, even this month with things like the voter suppression law that was just passed in Georgia. And this notion that the full participation in democracy somehow is a bad thing. And so help us to see some of the connections between something like what Wyrick was doing back in the 60s and 70s and what we're seeing now today. Well, it's very simple. Evangelical groups are part and parcel of promoting people like Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, and others. I think you could see it in terms of how the uh, special election rang out between John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock and the Republican candidates that happened, like Kelly Loeffler. These sorts of issues about voting become very important. And so when you have turnout on a Sunday, for instance, because Black churches like to get their souls to the polls out on Sundays and especially to go out and vote after you go to service, trying to stop Sunday voting, making sure that you can't give food or drink to anybody in line, and any of the other myriad of things that are happening are ways in which to enforce a modern-day poll tax, the kinds of poll taxes that people had to pay in the 19th and 20th century when they were Black and they tried to go and vote in the South. These Republicans are enacting a poll tax. But the fact of the matter is that evangelicals are supportive of this in part because they see their power waning. And one of the things I think that's very important is to see, as we say in the definition of this book and the description of it, that evangelicals play a powerful force in rendering our civil discourse and our civil politics apart. They are not there to make everything lovely. They are there to influence power and to make sure that their people are in power. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Anthea Butler. She's Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Pennsylvania. We're talking today about her recent book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. 
One thing that listeners may not know about this man that we're discussing, Paul Weirich, is that he was actually the coiner of the phrase, the moral majority, and I had never known that. But one thing that was interesting that I learned from your book, White Evangelical Racism, is that the moral majority adopted tactics of getting into politics and building coalitions and having massive marches that the leaders of the moral majority were criticizing when they were used by the civil rights movement just a few years before. And I'd love to hear about that kind of reversal of tactics and that reversal of approach. Yeah. If you want to, you know, sort of mark where the approach began, that was in the 60s. And we can think about somebody like Jerry Falwell Sr., who preaches a sermon called Minister in Marches in 1965, the same weekend Selma happens, basically to say this is not the way we're supposed to do this kind of civil action. But they change their minds in the 70s and they begin to see that perhaps if they're going to make any gains, if they're going to make any inroads on the country, that they need to organize. And so this first organization, the Moral Majority, which is a group of you know pastors that Jerry Falwell brings together, and he's in that leadership, becomes an important sort of inflection point. It also dovetails with something else. And I think this is really important to say. The organization Focus on the Family starts in the 1970s too. And so these parachurch organizations that are ostensibly to help you raise your family or to hear about evangelical concerns are also about lobbying. And so when we begin to look at the formation of this organization, of American Family Association, Family Research Council, and a myriad of others, this begins to solidify the kind of power that evangelicals have. And so it's not just about the moral majority, it's about the things that back up the moral majority. If you want to put another layer on top of this to make it very interesting, the rise of televangelism in the 1970s with the 700 Club, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and the PTL Club, Paul Crouch and his wife doing Trinity Broadcasting Network, and the establishment of these kinds of organizations that are media-driven and evangelical-driven help to reinforce these messages and to put them out into the ether. So you're not just getting a mailing. You're getting something on your television screen. You're getting a phone call. And then later on in the 1980s and the early 90s, when Christian Coalition is formed by Pat Robertson, you're getting a voting guide. And that tells you how to go and you can take that voter's guide right into the voting booth with you and just go down the slate of candidates that have been chosen for you. What's interesting about things like those voter guides is that they're happening alongside a change in strategy. And I recognize that the actual words that Lee Atwater said are not words that I would ask for anyone to hear or to be repeated on this program. But the gist of who Lee Atwater was and what Lee Atwater did in terms of describing the strategy at this time, the sort of Southern strategy of moving from explicit racism to more kind of covert racism, I think that's important for my listeners to learn about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can see this in the book. And Lee Atwater is a very interesting person because he knows how to hit below the belt, let's say. And what he says is basically, you don't want to do all this KKK stuff. You don't want to do this. You just need to start talking about these things in a different way. You need to talk about not just busing, but you need to talk about how you want to improve education. You need to speak about different things. You need to talk about law and order. You need to not say these bad words that people would 
would say before this as Southerners, you need to tone your conversation down essentially and give people code words that they can hear. So by the time we get to the 1988 election and they run this infamous commercial that is basically about Willie Horton and that ad that Bush uses, H.W. Bush loses in his campaign to, you know, denigrate what's happening with Dukakis. I think that's a moment in which we see the epitome of this. And we see it again and again in Republican campaigns. And evangelicals know instinctively how to respond to that. And they respond to it by voting for Republican candidates because it's a language that they can understand. So this language of law and order, the language of broken families, the language of how do we have a better educational system about housing or there's too many mass shootings and there's too many guns in the hood. Yeah, I put that in quotation marks, right? Because you're in Chicago, this kind of language, right? So that's the kind of language that helps take people over to that conservative side and to see, well, if I'm a Christian, if I'm a good evangelical, then this is what I should be believing. And unfortunately, it's not an informed opinion that is based in fact. And I think that another important parallel to be drawing out that is happening at the same time that the kind of Lee Atwater influenced strategy is moving from direct confrontational KKK politics to more covert code language politics is that we're moving from what I'm going to call the kind of Bob Jones model to a kind of Oral Roberts University model where we're beginning to see more persons of color visibly identified with ministries. But you point out in your book, White Evangelical Racism, that even though they may be there on the stage, they are not able to actually speak to the structural issues and to actually speak from their experience in a way that would actually change things. Now, those are my words, not yours. So I'm interested, how would you say that? And how can my listeners understand this better? The way I would help them to understand it is that these are Black people and other ethnicities who are being used to prop up colorblind racism. That is to say, especially Billy Graham, because I see him doing this in the late 60s and, and early 70s. The, the kinds of people you're on stage with him, whether that was Ethel Waters or I'm thinking about the myriad of singers that he may have had singing with him at the time. Andre Crouch, for instance. These people were invited there and I'm sure really loved being there, but they're props. And I hate to say it like that, but they are props for the white leadership to show we are integrated. I talk about this with Oral Roberts, too, in his television show and how he has the ORU Singers, which is an integrated group of singers. That looks really great to outsiders, but is it true sharing of power? Is it true sharing of all things? No, it isn't, because basically it's about how can we show that we're not racist? Oh, will get a Black friend. And so I think the classic case for me is the 700 Club with Pat Robertson and Ben Kinchlow, who was his partner on TV for a very long time on the 700 Club before he decided to step down. And I think that this kind of Black-white partnership that we see that happens starting in the late 60s on forward is about this colorblind racism that actually expects you to do something. And that colorblind racism expects you to act culturally white. 
And I know that's going to be really hard for people to hear because they're going to say, well, what's culturally right? Well, it is in the songs that you sing, in the way, deportment, how you dress, all of these kinds of things. And whether or not people believe that, I would ask them to read a companion book to mine, which is Kristen Kobes Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne. And you'll get the other side of this. And you put both of our books together and you'll have a very full picture of what's happening from the 1950s forward with colorblind racism and the ways in which white patriarchy is buttressed by this. I think I need to say one more thing here too. And I think this is really important for especially any listeners who might be out there who are evangelicals of color. And I think this is really important for you to hear. This is something that happens in a way unchecked and unnoticed until you notice the racism. And so just like my story at the very beginning, it doesn't, you feel comfortable until you're not comfortable, until it becomes a caricature, until it becomes very clear that you are being used for something rather than the person and the person of faith that you are. And I think it's really important for evangelicals of color to think about that, but for white evangelicals to acknowledge that some of the ways in which they have designed their worship teams or the ways in which they put Black people or others on the pastoral staff, but not giving them real authority, are these kinds of ways in which they are propping up their own kinds of issues about what they think this colorblind racism is supposed to be. Well, and I want to linger with that for just a moment, because, and, and this is completely anecdotal, I don't have data to back this up, but when I have spoken to my African-American friends and colleagues, and they have talked about those moments when they have become awake to the racism of their institutions, and they've begun to speak up about it, this re-narration happens again that we've been talking about throughout our conversation, where they're told, oh, you didn't really see what you saw, or, oh, you're just sowing dissent, or, Oh, why do you want to bring down the pastor? And I wonder if we could, as we're moving towards our next break, if you could speak a little bit about that moment where they are aware and they begin to speak from their experience and they hear their experience handed back to them in a twisted way. Yeah, I think that's the moment when you get disgusted and you have to decide whether you're going to leave or not. Okay. This is classic. I think that the moment you start to talk about race, or I'm thinking about the several articles in the Washington Post over the last couple of years about Black evangelicals leaving predominantly white churches because of Black Lives Matter. The way you hear this as a person of color in these instances is that your feelings don't matter or that somehow you're, you're being like the world and this is not how we deal with this in the church. And what does is discount the actual structural racism that is being embraced by that congregation, first of all, and secondarily, that structural racism that benefits the individual person, namely the white person that is telling you this thing, whether that's your pastor or somebody in leadership. And I think that this is troubling because basically it's this embedded racism that continues to replicate, that drives people away from these churches, first of all, but secondarily, it doesn't allow white evangelicals to realize the harm and the hurt and the destruction that they do to people because they cannot see racism as anything other than individual sin. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Anthea Butler. She's Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Pennsylvania and is the author of Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. She's a leading historian and public commentator on religion and politics. She's appeared on multiple networks, including CNN, the BBC, and MSNBC. She's published opinion pieces in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other media outlets. Today, we're talking about her recent book, White Evangelical Racism, 
The Politics of Morality in America. We'll be back in just a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these kinds of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Professor Anthea Butler. She's Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's the author of Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. She's a leading historian and public commentator on religion and politics who has appeared on multiple networks, including CNN, the BBC, and MSNBC. Her opinion pieces have been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other media outlets. Today, we're talking about her recent book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. In our last segment, we talked about Lee Atwater and the strategy that said, don't hit folks in the face with the KKK robes, don't be overtly racist, but instead take your racism underground, put it into code language that people will understand, but don't be so direct about it. But one of the things that you do in the sweep of your book, White Evangelical Racism, is that you show that in the last few years, what had been submerged has reemerged, and the in-your-face racism is back with us. And I wonder if you can help us to plot the main points of how that shift from a kind of Atwater-style covert racism to a return to more overt racism occurred. Well, I think it's two events. One is 9-11, because 9-11 bought out all the racism that was you know, inherent in thinking about Islam and terrorism. And so anybody who didn't look like they were white American was subject to being called names or vilified. And so this rampant Islamophobia, I think, is the first re- way, real way that we see this in the 21st century for evangelicals. It had already been there, but what 9-11 did was really to bring it out in a different kind of way. And I can remember after 9-11 happened, one of the things that people would say, and this is anecdotal, was that it was a moment for Black people to breathe a sigh of relief, unfortunately, because it was like, oh, great, they're not paying attention to us anymore. They're paying attention to somebody else, which is awful. But it was the truth, because the ways in which Muslims and others from the 
Middle East and beyond were vilified, you know, dominated the news cycle. If I think back to the potential building of what was called back then the 9-11 mosque and all of these different kinds of things, it was really terrible. The other thing I think is really interesting about the 9-11 thing and the George W. Bush administration was that George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism was lodged in evangelicalism and it was also lodged in the racism of evangelicalism. So what they did was to give lots of Black churches a lot of money to promote conservative ideals and things. And that paid off for him in the 2004 election because he won states like Ohio and, and others that he needed to wrestle away from John Kerry. So that's one moment. The second moment, which one of my friends astutely called the collective psychotic moment for white Americans, at least for some of them, was the election of Barack Obama. You know, a man whose name did not sound like an American name, who was all of the things that he is, you know, intelligent, great person, great president, but at the same time seemed to just make white evangelicals completely collapse. And I think it was that moment in which we see this hardening of the racism. In part, John McCain plays into some of this, but it's not until he gets Sarah Palin that that racism really comes out in his campaign in a vicious way to pair alongside the beginnings of the birtherism. So that when you see the rise of the Tea Party happening and everybody telling us, oh, this is about fiscal conservatism and David Brody's basically appellation of calling evangelicals who like the Tea Party, evangelicals. All of this was put into a limited government kind of phase, but what it really was out and out racism against the president of the United States. And everybody else could see it, but for evangelicals during that time who embraced that, this primed them to be ready for 2016 and in ways that we could not have anticipated. So that swell from 9-11 to the election of Barack Obama as president, first Black president of the United States, and that rise of the Tea Party and the rampant, very clear racism that you saw buttressed by Fox News and all of these other medias and the ways in which evangelicals played into that because the way they put their Christianity right into it was very important. And I think that's where it happens, actually. Thank you for that, Pracy. And I just want listeners to know that this gets dealt with in much, much greater detail over the scope of two, maybe three chapters in your book, White Evangelical Racism. So I can't say enough how valuable it will be for listeners to go and dig into that book. I want to linger for a moment with Sarah Palin, because at the time that she was rising to national prominence, I felt like I was paying pretty close attention. Nevertheless, you have some moments where you talk about some things that Sarah Palin was saying on the campaign trail, part of her stump speeches and answers to questions that she would asked by the crowds that literally just made my jaw drop. Like we're not even talking about any kind of coded racism anymore, but literally just racist statements, even approaching and possibly using N-word statements. And I just wonder if you could say a little bit about that just for a moment for listeners like me who were paying attention, but had no idea that she went that far. Yeah, I think what people paid attention to about Sarah Palin back then was that she didn't read the newspaper and all those things you saw in the press and the way that people made fun of her. But she's actually very effective. And I I think that the reason why you didn't pay attention is because you thought she was a beautiful woman who was just a little ditzy. But she was a very cunning woman who was very smart in her own kind of street smart way, and she knew what to say. And so when she talked about Obama palling around with terrorists, and that was a a reference to his friendship with one of the weathermen of, of Chicago, 
I think that that was an interesting moment when she begins to talk like this right at the top of October 08. That is when the campaign gets really crazy. And the kinds of things that people end up saying because of that, and I referenced, this was actually done by Al Jazeera, a place where they met in, in Pennsylvania, and the racism of people having monkeys dressed up like Barack Obama and bringing him to the thing and the ways in which she, you know, she attacked him so much so that this is the precursor to what we saw at Trump rallies. The words and the phrases that she said and the way that she said them, and because she was saying them as a white woman, really helped to inflect what was happening in that election cycle. And so much so that there's a moment in which John McCain has to reprimand somebody who asked him a question about Barack Obama and is he really an American? Is he a Muslim or something? He tries to play that down, but the cat was already out of the bag. And there was no pulling that back. And I think that in one way, it may have hurt McCain's campaign, but in another way, it solidified a certain kind of thing with evangelicals because she was white. She had a Down syndrome baby that she didn't abort. She was everything that an evangelical woman looked like she could be. Plus, she could shoot. And it just it was like Annie Oakley from Alaska. And it really worked, except for the fact that she had some virulent racism that was coded racism in the things that she said. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Anthea Butler. She's Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Pennsylvania. We're talking about her recent book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. One of the things that I appreciated especially about your book, White Evangelical Racism, is just as you said earlier in the show, it doesn't just jump to Trump was a problem and to look at Trump and to try and diagnose the Trump moment. But instead, what you do so well, and I'm going to say it's almost surgical in the way that you do it, is you lay out all these other pieces from, in many ways, the last 150 years of American history. And then you go very close on the last 40 years of American history. And you create almost what I would call a Trump-shaped hole. So that even though at the end of the book, you deal with Trump only momentarily in terms of talking about how the rise of Trump created an especial moment for evangelicals. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. I'm really fascinated by the way in which you basically showed us that Trump fit into a hole that was made almost tailor-made by evangelicals. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think that once you put together the history, and I've done it for you, thank you, after years and years of work, Once you put together this history, you realize that this was the inevitability of American evangelicalism, that it was going to go to someone like Donald Trump. The way I like to talk about Donald Trump is basically Donald Trump is a mirror. He's not anything new. He's just a mirror to who you already are. And so for evangelicals, Donald Trump was the apotheosis of everything that they had carved themselves to be. They were, you know, anti-science. They were anti-immigrant. They were pedestrian in terms of their thinking about what made riches, what constitutes wealth, what constitutes the way in which you should speak to people. It was like the veneer had been pulled off and all of those things, all of the work that evangelicals had done, basically, all the work that Atwater had pushed them to, you know, don't say this, don't be outwardly racist, that all went away. And actually, when you begin to see to the 2000s and the peeling away of this with the Tea Party and, and Palin and the campaigns and the way in which evangelicals were willing to let go of the moral issues, 
And this is very important because I think for people that are going, well, what about the morality part? Well, the morality part really wasn't the morality anyway. It was just something they used to hit everybody else over the head with. Because by the time we get to Trump, who's the thrice married president, it used to be that evangelicals would not have even voted for somebody like that because he had been married and divorced. That was a disqualification. But there's nothing that Donald Trump did that was a disqualification for evangelicals because they voted 81% for him. And so when you talk about a Trump-shaped hole, what I think is that's the hole that they dug for themselves by starting off with the racism in the 19th century and moving forward to all of these kinds of things that they embraced in order to get power. Well, and you even mentioned at one point back in the 1970s, the infamous Playboy article where Jimmy Carter says, yes, I've lusted after many women in my heart. And that was, you say in your book, a bridge too far for some evangelicals. But then you fast forward to Trump, as you say, thrice married, womanizing, all kind of nefarious things in his past, and they embrace him wholeheartedly. And I think that one of the things that I really appreciated very much about your book, White Evangelical Racism, is and we've been talking about it through the entire conversation, you stay lock-focused on anti-Black racism. That is the lens that you are looking through. But even as you stay lock-focused on anti-Black racism, you are bringing in the ways in which evangelicals have also been exclusive of same-sex attracted people, gays, lesbians, bisexuals. All those other issues are there in this drama as well. And even as you stay lock-focused on anti-Black racism, those other pieces come in in an intersectional way. And so I'd like to ask you about how you see intersectionality playing into your analysis within this book. I think it's important because I don't want to just think that this is a black-white thing, right? It's a, you know, we hate Muslims thing. It's a, we don't like gays thing. It's a, we're, we're not quite sure about women being in leadership thing. All of these things are important. And I think you can see that intersectionality if you think about the ways in which things start off in the 70s, it's not just about the racism. It's about, do we want ERA or not? How does Phyllis Schlafly attain the power with the Eagle Forum that she does? It's because she comes out against the Equal Rights Amendment. So it's not just about Black-white issues. It's about women. It's about gays when we have the AIDS epidemic and HIV and how LGBT people are treated. We can see this right now and these transgender laws that are being passed by mostly Southern states right now. Or if you think back a couple of years, the bathroom laws, that was the bathroom panic. I had a very good friend who lost lost a job because of that bathroom panic issue, which was just ridiculous, okay? Absolutely ridiculous. So I think about these kinds of things, and I think even for you to use the word intersectionality would discount it for some people because they're like, well, we don't want to think about that. Just they don't want to think about critical race theory and the Southern Baptists right now. But the fact of the matter is, is that evangelicals continue to put themselves in these predicaments because of the racial animus that they have. And that racial animus also flows out to their gender issues. It flows out to the ways they think about sexuality. It flows out to the way that they think about the other and immigration it's a morass for them. And I'm, I hate to say this, those of you who are biblically minded out there, when I say that evangelicals have Ichabod on top of the door, they really do. The, the glory has gone from evangelicalism. It is gone. And there's nothing left but a smoldering trash heap. And I think that it's time for them to realize that the things that they have promulgated and the things that they have done have not been life-giving to either themselves to the people that they say they want to convert or to America proper. 
I was struck when I came to the last couple of pages of your book, White Evangelical Racism. You literally say to the reader, if you're convinced of everything that I've said, the evidence that I brought before you, that this is a problem and it needs to be addressed, you can put the book down now. And then you say, but if you're still with me, and if you want to throw the book at the wall and you think that I'm talking about a problem that isn't really a problem, let me speak heart to heart with you. I wonder, and I, I recognize that I want very much for listeners to actually read the book, but I wonder if you could speak a little bit about what you're trying to convey to the unconvinced in those last pages of your book, White Evangelical Racism. You know, I'm going to say it in a way that people will understand it. I'm not a nice person. I'm a prophet. And a prophet tells you like it is. And I think that the problem for evangelicals right now is that they're living in the worlds of their own construction. They are in what we, we call our silos of how they think about themselves and how they listen. And they've constructed those silos in such a way that they don't see that the damage that they're doing to themselves or to their neighbors or to the country. And I think let's just take one little thing that's not in the book, but I think is really important. A couple of days ago, there was an article about evangelicals not wanting to get the vaccine. Now, you would think that they would get the vaccine because they want to be able to regain their lives. But no, they don't think about it because there's either the conspiracy theories that they're embracing or they don't think so because their pastor told them not to, or they think that there's going to be some chip in there because they think that this is the last days, or any kind of thing that makes them not want to get the vaccine. But the fact of the matter is that if they would get the vaccine, they would be doing their part for their fellow citizens. It would be a way in which we could increase the herd immunity in this country. It would help themselves and their families to not get this dreaded virus again and again. It would help the medical system. But evangelicals don't want to do that. And it's because they're selfish. And so the last two pages of the book are about telling them who they really are and what they've done and what they will continue to do if they don't turn away. And that's the whole point, because basically we've had all these things about racial reconciliation. We've had all these you know, performances of repentance that I like to call them. But the fact of the matter is evangelicals haven't turned away from one thing they've ever done. They continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. And I got tired of reading these histories that have been written that are valorous about evangelicals, when the fact of the matter is that here we are in 2021, and they may be the cause of more death and destruction in this country because they won't even take a vaccine, let alone do anything else. I am thankful that you took the time to write this book. As I said earlier, I think that the precision that you bring to these issues and to the history here is surgical. There's such clarity here and such new ground for readers. If you pick up this book and you begin to read on the first page, by the time you get to 150 pages in, you will have a new view of the last 150 years of this country. This is a profound and powerful book, and I'm so grateful that you took the years to write it. But also, I'm incredibly grateful, Professor Anthea Butler, that you took the time to talk to me and my listeners about it today. Thank you so much, David. I'm glad to be here. And I'm hoping that your listeners will take some of what was said today to heart.
We've been speaking today with Professor Anthea Butler. She's Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's the author of Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World. She's a leading historian and public commentator on religion and politics, and she's appeared on networks including CNN, the BBC, and MSNBC. She's published numerous opinion pieces in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other media outlets. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, White Evangelical Racism. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.